I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to see you this morning. Um, just going to get out of the way. I have a little bit of a limp. I fell yesterday when I was hiking and training for Nepal, so I'll be fine. Um, there's nothing you know else to, to, to go on with that. Um, I did want to also uh, let you know about this this walk through the Bible. Um, in three hours, what we're hoping with that it was in our biblical literacy. What that means is we'll understand and have a framework for the entire Old Testament so that from now forward in your life, anytime you hear a story, you'll know where to hang it in that framework. You're like, oh yeah, that was when this happened, or that's when this happened, or these kings, when this, the kings were happening here, the prophets were here, the judges were here, you know, the creation. You, you'll have that story, and it'll be forever just kind of placed in your head, and you'll be able to relate every story to that, especially pointing forward to Christ in the New Testament. So we, we thought, it was, what a great opportunity to do that together, have our kids involved with that, see how that goes. So I just really uh, am excited about that and hope that uh, everybody can come out. We'll have a great time. And speaking of everybody coming out, we, uh, we, we were just hoping people weren't going to get stuck in the parking lot over here in the, the new grass lot we have, uh, kind of marked off for the ghost ship uh, thing on, on Friday night. What a great time. I think we still rank at the top, from what they say on the social media, as the loudest thing in church uh, on their, their concert uh, tour there. So uh, it was fantastic. There were tears in my eyes many, many times. Um, sometimes at the, the glory of the Lord and sometimes at watching you guys singing your hearts out. Um, and it kind of went back and forth. Fantastic. Um, let's, let's go. Um, we're going through the book of Mark. So if you've got your scripture journal out or you have a Bible, or if you didn't bring one, there's one on the ground. Grab that. We're in Mark 15, 33 through the end of the chapter, which I think is like 47. Um, we're going to get through that today. If this is your first time or you're new, we typically go through books of the Bible. So we're toward the end of Mark right now. Um, and we've got Mark 16 next week. We've got two more weeks. And we'll be through Mark, and then we'll have like an off week or two, and then we'll start a new series. And I'm really excited about that one. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. Um, I'm going to <laughs> hold on to that. Just for fun. Actually, I know what it is. It's Proverbs. We're going to go through Proverbs. I just made that up right here. And, no, I'm just kidding. We've been planning that for a long time. Everybody's like, what? I'm like, yeah. So we're going to go back to the Old Testament. And I've kind of been afraid of Proverbs for a long time just because it's so different. The genre is so different. But believe it or not, somewhere around the beginning of July, I, I, the Lord just put it. I'm just really excited about it. And so, I, I don't know. I'm not, not, not talking about that anymore. All right, go turn to Mark. Let's jump into the story. Let's pick up where everybody, uh, where we are in the story. So Jesus the Messiah has predicted his suffering. He's been, uh, he predicted his mocking and his scourging, his crucifixion. And last week, we, we, we talked about the shame and the suffering that he walked through, all right, and, and that accompanied the trial. And today, we focus on his death. And so it's heavy material. It really is. I'm not starting with a story or, or, or anything like that. But at the same time that it is heavy and weighted, it's full of glory and, and splendor. And so let's, let's not forget that. That death and resurrection are two sides to the same coin. That you can't, you can't have one without the other. That without the, the death of Christ that, that is in our place, we, we can't really experience what happens through the resurrection. And without the resurrection, the death didn't mean anything. All right, so we've got to we have both of those together. So let's start in verse 33 and pick up in the story if we can. And when the sixth hour had come, this is what Kirk had just read, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, uh, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All right, so the crucifixion has started at 9 o'clock in the morning, very early, um, for, for something like that, right? And the sixth hour is, is 12 o'clock, so that's, Noon. So from noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, there's this darkness over the land. 
Now, it's not really explainable as an eclipse. You guys, we went through an eclipse just recently, right? Everybody's driving to Nashville, and, and you know, lazy people like me were like, I'm just going to stay in the backyard. We'll see. What you'll see. We'll see. It won't be as awesome, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Right? It, it can't be an eclipse because it's Passover, and during Passover, there's, it's a full moon. So because of the way the solar system is arranged, that's not possible. All right, so it couldn't be an eclipse, and, and we've had people, you know, scholars have gone through that. They, it's a, sta- a sandstorm. We've had all kinds of plausible things, and, and none of them really make any sense, other than the fact that it's inescapable. It's a divine event, all right? That's just what it is, um, and, and it takes place with no good explanation. God simply turns the lights out. <laughs> that, that's what's going on. Lights off. He walked in the kitchen, and he turned the lights off. And in the Old Testament, darkness is associated with judgment and God's displeasure. Uh, we've seen that Exodus 10 and the plagues, the ninth plague, which is the one right before the, the tenth and last plague, uh, is where darkness is all over the land of Egypt. Now, interestingly enough, the ninth plague of darkness is right before the tenth plague of the angel of death and the Passover, like the Passover angel. If you had blood from the lamb on the lintel on your doorway, then the angel of death would pass over you and your firstborn would not be killed. I find that very interesting that the night before Jesus, the Passover lamb, is going to be killed that, or, or, or the day of, right before Jesus is fully dead, that there's darkness over the whole land. Um, and, and we're reading, if you're in the, your CBR, if you're in Summit Daily and you get in the daily text, we're in the book of Deuteronomy together, right? And so Deuteronomy 28 is coming. We're not there yet, but that is where the covenant blessings and covenant curses are given to Israel as they're going into the land. Deuteronomy just means the second giving of the law or, or the second time for the law. And so if you read the second part, I think it's starting in verse 15, starting down in Deuteronomy 28, you'll see these terrible curses that are in there. And it's actually what the darkness is. Do this and things will go well for you, 1 through 14 or 15 in Deuteronomy. And you, but if you do not, then here's the terrifying promise for judgment day when the curses are going to come down. If you read in Amos 8, Verse 9, you you see more about Judgment Day and and the curses. It says, On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Oh, okay, so this is something we've been looking for. Yep, it is. So now it's dark at noon. So what's happening here? And it's interesting, when we did Christmas, I think it was two years ago, we talked about Christmas. Christmas and the the shepherds, and when the angels showed up and said, Glory to God in the highest, it was nighttime. And their, their glory was so great that it seemed as it was day. Now, that was the birth of Jesus. Now we have the death of Jesus where it is daytime, and yet it's like it's night. And so you see the flipping on its head there. What is the darkness? It's the judgment and the wrath of God. It's descending upon Jesus. It is the curses of the covenant promised in the Old Testament to Israel and for God's people for their disobedience. That's where the prophets we get time after time. They're covenant lawyers. In the Old Testament, turn away, turn away, turn away from those guys, turn away. Here's what's coming down on Jesus. Our judgment day. Our judgment day. That, that is what is descending on Jesus. God's wrath is descending the horrors of the cosmic da- darkness. The promised curses are falling on him. He is receiving the sinner's fate. The full weight of the curse of sin. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's from Deuteronomy. 
so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So this is what Jesus prayed to have removed from him in the garden. Right, when we talk about the cup, this is the cup when he, he says, remove this cup from me. And the cup is kind of like your divine destiny, like um, judgment falling on Egypt or uh, the Babylonians, right? The cup of wrath. And he says, if there be any other way, let this cup pass. So that's what's happening. Now, what the, the theological term for what's happening right now at the cross, and we don't go into a lot of Bible words all the time, but I do think it's important, right, is penal substitutionary atonement. It's important. You don't have to know the words, but you have to get the concept. So penal substitutionary atonement. Um, that's the term. So penal is like penalized. Jesus is taking our penalty for sin, right? Substitutionary. You got that one probably, right? He's taking our place. He is the substitute for us. So the substitute taking the punishment, the penalty, atonement. Think of that as at one mint. All right, that's how we think of that. And so two come together. There's reconciliation. There is now a one-ment because of Jesus taking our place. Now we are reconciled. We are brought back into relationship with God. All right, that is, that's the concept that, that is happening right here, that Jesus is taking the wrath of God in it. We say it a lot, so I know you know this, but I, you know, it doesn't hurt to hear it again. <laughs> Jesus is taking the wrath of God in our place in order to reconcile sinners to God. God saves sinners. This is how it happens. This is the mechanism. John Stott said it this way, God's satisfaction through God's substitution. Right? Now, as much as I love C.S. Lewis and the, and the Chronicles of Narnia, I think he got this wrong. Okay, Because if, if you remember that story, Aslan offers himself in Edmund's place to the witch as a ransom. right? And that's, that's really not what's going on here at the cross. Jesus is offering himself for God's wrath. It's not like Jesus is fighting the enemy and finally gives over to the enemy. The enemy is crushed, and it's God's wrath that is appeased. We, we have to understand that because it's, it's important, right? It's God, God's wrath against sin. When we say, hey, are you saved? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> saved from what? God's wrath, his judgment, his punishment because of his son. We're saved from the wrath of God who is perfectly holy and cannot tolerate sinfulness. It's, it's kind of the theme of the Bible, right? This, this started in, in Genesis, right? It's like with Genesis, sin comes in, man is separated, and, and women are they're kicked out of the garden, and there's this flaming sword there that you can't get back in. Jesus went under the sword. That's what the cross is. It's, it's from the beginning we've been looking for that. Jesus is taking all the sin, the evil, the darkness, and the wickedness on himself. So 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this, he, who, he became sin who knew, knew, knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so the darkness at noon is God's anger directed at his son, not at the soldiers, not at the crowd, not at the disciples for letting this happen. It's directed at his son. And with that poured out wrath in three hours, we see the response of Jesus in verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Ara this is in Aramaic. It, it's interesting that Mark records this in Aramaic. Everything else is like, here's the Greek. You know, just, just do it like that. Here's, here's, and here's the fact here, and here's the data here, and here's what happened. Aramaic is Jesus' heart language. It's his native tongue. 
It's the way he just spoke every day. And so Jesus has been progressively, remember, he's been progressively abandoned since the beginning of chapter 14. His family kind of thinks he's out of his mind. Uh, uh, he's betrayed by Judas. The disciples have fled. The religious leaders have sold him out. Peter has denied him. There's nobody left. Even one guy, if you remember back in, in chapter, I think it was in 14, there was, you had this one verse out of nowhere that says, and there was a young man that was following him, and, and he left his cloak, his linen cloak, and fled naked. Right? I, I'd rather flee naked through the woods than be associated with Jesus right now. He's all alone. And with the darkness and wrath comes the ultimate abandonment now. Even God, his father. And so we see this as the separation that evoked the cry of my God, my God. He didn't cry my hands or my head or my feet. He cried my God. Um, I think that's why Mark records his actual heart language rather than letting us know. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 here in the original Hebrew. He, he didn't. And so we can't really reduce this down to Jesus is mechanically reading the next line in a divine script. Okay, now this is where I say Psalm 22 because this is what's happening. It doesn't work like that. Jesus doesn't get to circumvent suffering. He doesn't circumvent death. Even though he knows what's happening, he walks right through it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he says, follow me. Now, it gets portrayed like that sometimes, like there's just this divine script and Jesus is doing the next thing. And I just don't think that does the separation that Jesus has experienced here justice. It doesn't do the cross justice, I don't, I don't think. It seems, it seems to maybe demean his work and, and his suffering. Because the separation from his father is not only something that is felt, but it's something that's real. Now, this is a mystery for sure. We're not saying the, the Trinity has been ripped asunder and is changed. We're not saying that. There's some mystery that's happening at the cross here where Jesus is actually experiencing this realness of being separated and abandoned by his Father. It's never been done before. And so I think that's what brought him to sweat, as, and sweating, as it were, drops of blood in Gethsemane. And so we can't play that down. Because if we play that down, we don't really understand. We're saying we don't really understand the fellowship of the Trinity that this infinite joy and love, this relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that they've enjoyed all of eternity has now been somehow affected. And I was meditating on it this week a little bit. Um, and, and I read a, a helpful line. It, it said, like, say one of you come up to me after, after service, and um, you've come maybe a few weeks, and you say, Jamie, I never want to talk to you again. I never want to see you again. All right, somebody, that would be hurtful. All right, just honestly, that'd be, that, that would hurt my feelings. I'd probably lose one night's sleep, and then I'd go, well, you know, I'm not, I can't be everybody's savior. You know, I can't do it all. I'm sorry, something happened. All right, that, that would bother me. Now, if my wife comes up to me after the service, and she says, you know what? I don't ever want to talk to you again. I don't ever want to see you again. That's going to hurt on a whole other different level, right? That's going to be devastating. And, and you'll know psychologists tell us this, that uh, a spouse's death or, or losing a spouse through divorce is traumatic. It's life-altering. And so multiply that times infinity for that rel just thinking about that, right? That's called meditating on that. Knowing in theory and knowing through experience are not the same thing. Um, my grandmother lived with me all, all of my life. Uh, she lived next door to us till I was four, 
And then she moved in until she passed away at 94. Um, I remember when she died. She had had CHF, uh, a congestive heart failure for, for many years, and it was just progressing quickly as she was getting close to 93, 94. And I knew we'd catch up with her at some point. And I, I thought about what life would be like without her many times. I was in my, my 30s. And we were, we were close. You know, we used to color together on the bed after school, just me and Grandma coloring. That was before I had brothers and sisters. You know, we would watch the Rockford Files. Anybody? Anyone? Uh, wow, that did better than I thought. I'm like, that, that's an oldie. Wal- uh, Walker, Texas Ranger, Matlock. This is my, 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 this is my grandmother's sweet spot on TV right here. And so I have a, an affinity in my heart for those, those shows. She cooked breakfast for me every morning since I could remember. I remember we, as a mid-20-year-old, graduating PT school, finding the first job, and absolutely hating it, going home. And I wept as a 25-year-old, and my grandmother held me. I'll never forget that. And so when she actually died, it surprised me to death how unprepared I was for the true finality of her being gone. And it was just absolutely disorienting for me. I would find myself walking in and just picking up the phone to call her. And I'm like, it's been months. You know, and so walking through that versus the theory of that is very different. And I want, I want us to, to get that. Jesus trusts his father at the point of death. Of, of, we see infinite suffering with perfect obedience <laughs> mingled right here. And so while his wrath, while the Father's wrath is being poured out on him in this darkness, Jesus cries out in his humanness to the effect of, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Follow me. (laughs) Though he slay me, yet yet I will trust him. And then Jesus, you know, earlier he had quoted Zechariah, says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. This is God, the Lord of hosts, speaking in Zechariah that's, prophecy and jesus said that a little bit earlier and 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 while he's being instructed the disciples fled right and so we he uses that kind of as a shorter prophecy god strikes his son we see it again in isaiah 53 verse 10 here's a prophecy yet it was the will of the lord other uh, versions say it was it pleased the lord to crush him he has put him to grief talking about jesus talking about his son so who killed jesus Yes, our sin put him there. Yes, he died at the hands of the Romans. Yes, it was through the motivation of the religious leaders, but it was all according to the sovereign plan of the Father. Complicated and yet simple. Why? Because there wasn't any other way. <laughs> I mean, Jesus said in John ten eighteen, he says, nobody takes my life from me, so it's not a ransom of, to the devil. He's like, no, no, no. Nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it back up again. He chose to walk the path, the pain, the suffering, the mocking, and the death. Now, follow up. If that doesn't melt your heart for the gospel, to see Jesus' love and trust of his Father in that moment and for you is purely displayed at the cross. Now, if it doesn't, I think you may be like the, the person that's next in line down here that we see in verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah because Eloi 
Um, that's kind of like, that's the word for God, my God. And Elijah in Hebrew sounds similar to that. So if he's screaming through lifts that are, you know, kind of puckered and dehydrated, maybe they, they thought that because there was this superstition that when you're in trouble that Elijah would come if you called for him. And so they're, they're looking for that. And so, so some scholars say it's more, more mocking. And some believe it's an act of kindness to bring this moisture. Uh, it said 36, and someone ran and, and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes. will come to take him down. And so that's what they would think. And, and in John, uh, it's recorded that Jesus said, I thirst. And so somebody who's out of kindness is, is maybe going to help him live a little bit longer. And if you've been with people who have passed away while that was happening, those little sticks would help wet their lips and their throat just so they can swallow one more time. It's just the mental image. I worked hospice for a long time, and so I've I've seen that a lot. And so is this guy maybe, or or woman, we we don't know, in hopes of maybe keeping Jesus alive a little bit longer so that Elijah can save him. This is a person standing in the front of the Savior of the world at the foot of the cross, exposed to the king, and the expectations they have are more in tune with the superstitions of Elijah than with Jesus. Because we must have the Holy Spirit. Or we'll look at the cross as a formula. We'll look at the cross as a set of principles to be a nice person. And then we'll think that if we live like that most of the time, that we're good people, then we will make it to heaven. We will not. And to think so is to miss what's happening here. See, the real condition of sin is being exposed. The real issue is not what has sin done to me, how has it wrecked my world. The real issue is what has sin done to God. What are his creator rights? We're so worried about our rights. We don't ever think about what are his rights. Right? Our sin is so horrendous that it takes the gruesome death of God's Son to free us from it. And so the cross solves a huge, the huge problem of humanity. Yes, the cross is Jesus identifying with us in our weakness, but it's more than that. Yes, the cross is a demonstration of God's love for us, but it's more than that. Yes, it is an example of how to face life's injustice with courage. Yes, it is an example of how, to, how Jesus was bearing our shame. But it's more than that. Those things make sense in light of the central purpose of the cross, which is this. That he would absorb the just wrath of God in our place for our sin. By becoming a curse for us, Jesus solves humanity's primary problem in that that they are separated from God. That is the base problem behind every other problem that you have. Every problem you have in life is a spiritual problem at its core. We're separated by God from sin. And now by faith, we aren't. So, there's the bad news with a quick flip at the end. Let's move on because we're talking about the gospel. The next verse is a hinge for this passage. Number two, the torn veil. Keep reading, verse 38. And the the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) You see how that's just thrown in there? That's like this, all right, these were terrible things, and the flogging, and the mocking, and the scourging, and the spitting, and the death. 
and the, ta- and the, and the curtain was torn. And, it's like, and then verse 39, and the centurion, I'm like, hold on, full stop. That's a big deal. What's going on here, Mark? Jesus' death is explained, and in this quick transitional phrase about this curtain, the king was killed, and then the drapes got ripped. Mark knows his readers would understand, and we don't get it so much. When Jesus died, the curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom. And the curtain was what separated the Holy of Holies and the temple from the other part of the temple. Like, this is where the, the, the Shekinah glory, the, the manifested presence and glory of God was behind here. You don't, you don't go there. You, you will die. It's like this 80-foot curtain. So it's not like you could walk up to it like a shower curtain and, you know, do that. I mean, it's thick. You, you could not tear it. It's used to pe- keep people out. I mean, that was what it was used for, keep people away from God. And only, only the holiest man on the holiest day of the year, once a year, with a blood sacrifice could even go in there. And they were scared of that place. Kind of like they were scared when Moses was getting the, the Ten Commandments, and they, he was on the mountain, and there was like smoke and fire and thunder, and everybody's like, you know, don't, don't even go close lest we even touch it or we should die. All right, that, that's kind of the, the feeling there. And Mark says the curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom to the top. What does that mean? Well, it's important. Because that's the defining difference in all religions and Christianity. See, all religions are trying to go from the bottom to the top. They're trying to work their way up to God. If you do this, if you do this, if you can measure up, if you have your Bible study, if you do these things, or if you're good, if you do the eightfold path, or if you do the, the four, you know, all these things. And God is different in Christianity. He says, rip <laughs> from the top to the bottom. You now have access. He initiates the tear. He removed the veil separating man and God. Then that veil that had been there since the Garden of Eden. That's what the whole Bible has been pushing toward ever since sin first came on the scene, and He is still removing veils in our hearts today. That's the beauty of this. See, God tore His own curtain. God crushed His own Son. He wrecked His own temple. And it is God who is opening up the doorway to heaven for us to come back to Him. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 kind of gives a little commentary to, to follow up on that. And, and it shows up in several places in, in Hebrews. And I, just, I just picked one. But the author says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, The ripping of the veil is God saying the sacrifice of Jesus is the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. Now anybody can come in. Just believe in my son and you can be restored to me. Anyone can connect to God. The barrier is gone. We have direct access to God. And it bothers me that I don't get amazed with it all the time. And I want to be, but I find times that, that I'm not. And I take it for granted. And yes, His grace covers that. I, I, I understand that. But it still stinks. And I still shouldn't do it. And it's my sin that's still being purged out of me. And I, and I, I, get, I know the answers. But just like Jesus can't avoid the pain, we, we still have to walk through that stuff. We do that together. 
We do that as people that love Jesus. We do that as people that need to love Jesus more. We do that as people that sometimes just hurt and don't see, or they're in the dark. They're in the tomb. Three days feels like a year sometimes, two years. Three days feels like the death of a close one. Three days feels like a divorce. Three days in the tomb feels like, I don't know, whatever hurt, real bad. Oh, that we wouldn't take that for granted. Oh, that we would seek and hurt. And we would do that together. Or we would do that in front of him. Jesus. The great and the glory of what he has done. Number three, the effects of the veil. to imagine that we have access to God. I'm thinking about what it took. I don't think we really appreciate the fact that we have no business being in the presence of God. I forget that all the time. I just assume. Why wouldn't you let me hear? I'm pretty good. I've been reading, I've read the I've memorized a lot of verses. You know what? I even sacrificed last week. I did that. I almost feel this entitlement mentality. And this just humbles the mess out of me. I mean, just right now, none of this is, is written. And so what I'm saying is it's okay to not understand this. It's okay to enter in and go, this is disorienting. I don't feel like you're here. I'm like, well, okay. Here's what happened. It's not just about the fear. It's about the reality. You need somebody to tell you that sometimes. Because you're going to forget if you do it on your own, or if you think you've got it, or if, or if you're, you're walking on your own. You're going to forget that. You need, I need to hear it. Oh, you're up there, you're a preacher, you're studying all week. No, it don't work like that. My heart's the same. We need to constantly be reminded. That's why God, it's like live in community. I exist in community, live in community, and we're like a hundred pianos that are tuned by one tuning fork. We all are constantly coming back to him and then we're, we're, we're going to be in tune together, and then we're going to push each other back to the tuner. All right, the original, the tune, the one that we all have to go to. That's, that's, that's how that works. <laughs> so we're seeking together, and we're, we're, and we're seeking alone, and we're doing both, right? And so when the veil was torn, here, here, here's the effects of the veil. The first person recorded, here, here's good news. The, the first person recorded to actually get the point of the gospel of Mark was the centurion, Right? Seriously? After all this, coming to his own and his people and in the Jewish nation, and did you read the Old Testament? He's kind of been patient with him a long time. You'd think that that's, that'd be where that would happen. And it's like, no, the one that just put him to death, the expert, the one that made sure he was dead, that they spend three and a half verses here going, well, is he dead, Pilate? I don't know. That's a centurion. He's the expert. Is he dead? Yeah, I think he's dead. I've, I've seen a thousand people die. Yeah, he's dead. We made sure. Get his corpse and take it over there. Yes, he's dead. This is the guy that says, the most unlikely person, that when he saw how Jesus breathed his last, this is truly, this is the Son of God. Is that who's going to be our witness in the Bible? I mean, if I'd written the Bible, I would not let him get that credit. That guy, what's wrong with that guy? He's not mentally right. Right? And 
this unnatural darkness that falls. Matthew records this earthquake. Maybe that helped him. I don't know. Walking, watching zombies walk around a little bit for a while. I mean, that's, that's odd, right? Something bigger is going on here. He gets it. And the point that Mark has been making since chapter 1 is at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hey, here, earth, here's your king. Peter proclaimed him the Messiah, but that's not quite the same thing as recognizing that it is God himself dwelling among his people as a person, <laughs> right? The Jews did not get that. Those that were on the inside, the religious leaders, they didn't get that. Those that thought they were in the kingdom didn't get it. The Roman centurion, who's outside the kingdom, is the first to speak the truth. And he's the last person we would expect to get it. I love that. I love that. He is ground zero for global missions. (laughs) Boom! There's the nuclear power. The nuclear bomb of the gospel goes... first person saved nobody witnessed to him because god doesn't need us we get to go he's the first one to say and as you see the bookends of the gospel here jesus is king he's the son of god at the beginning chapter one verse one and then right here he is the king of the jews now what will you do with the king so the rest of the passage shows us what happens when the veil was torn and access to god is no longer managed Right, and the requirements to approach him are not, they're just reduced to simply believing in who Jesus was, in his son. The doorway swings wide, and now the world is going to start to enter. The Roman centurion, a Gentile, an enemy of God, now welcome into the kingdom. We read verses 40 and 41. Uh, the women who are following, they represent the lowest social ladder, right? Uh, lowest rung on the social ladder. Yes, you too. You're welcome there. You. You come into the kingdom. You, you don't have to stay relegated to the court of women anymore. When the veil was ripped, it was ripped for all. You're now invited in. You're not tolerated. You're not prevented. We read in verse 42. Read Joseph of Arimathea, right? A respected member of the council, verse 43 says, he was on the highest rung of the social ladder. You're not excluded. You're not out because you're at the, high, you're, you're, you're at the height of, of wealth or respect or power. You're not excluded because of that. It's all about faith. You take what you own and you put it in an open hand. Come on in. Whether you're a great sinner, even to the degree of being in charge of Jesus' death, or you're outside the people of God, or outside those that think they're in, the nations are now welcomed in. You are welcomed in. What is preventing you? Let me finish with Psalm 22 that Jesus quoted just the first part of. Because it might make a little more sense. He started with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 27 ends it up through 31. I'm just going to read. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and even the one who cannot keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. (laughs) He has done it. He has rescued us. He has defeated sin. He has restored us to God. To him be our glory and honor and wisdom and power. 
Amen. Let's pray together. If you're new here, we just spend some time in response to God's word right where you are. Three directives. Meditate on the cross for a moment. If you don't know what that means, think on it. Think about it. What was that like? Why was he there? What happened because of that? Spend, spend a moment thanking Jesus that he absorbed the full wrath that you deserve, that I deserve. And then pray for boldness to share the sacrificial love of Jesus with somebody specific this week. When you see that, when you walk through that in the Bible, you see what happens. You can't be unchanged. <laughs> oh, Holy Spirit, move among us. Let's pray for a, a minute or two. I'll close us in prayer and lead us in the Lord's Supper, but you, you need to keep praying. Father, we ask for your forgiveness. I know that I ask for myself. When I read the, the verse, and the veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And we have direct access to you that we take for granted. And we feel like, well, of course. Father, would you restore the sense of awe that should accompany that. For we make you in our image. We say things like, I couldn't think, I couldn't believe in a God that would do this or that would do this. And we make you in our image and we try to conform you to what we want you to be. And if you were what we wanted you to be, we would be, you, you could not save us. You are above us, you transcend. We have come from you. We are created. We are not uncreated. And yet we presume to tell you how you should be. Would you open our hearts that we might see you as you are high and lifted up on your throne of glory as Isaiah 6 uh, sees you, that we would worship, that our hearts would be melted, that we would be consumed and knowing that we were created to worship you, that that is the purpose of our lives at the end of the day. Would you show us that? We're not trying to just get into heaven. We're not trying to just be better people. We're not trying to just get by in a peaceful life. Father, you've made us for so much more than that. We settle. We settle for so little. Calling it glory. And so would you, by your grace, by your mercy, give us hearts that will spit out what the world offers in disgust 
running hard after you, wanting to know your glory, to taste your goodness, to trust what your word says, to have our hearts set afire so that we will know what it's truly like to be like the disciples, willing to lay down our lives, to denounce everything, to be worthy to be called your disciple. Not that we are worthy, but we have seen the worthy one. And from our response in that is to give everything away that is going to get in our way. We need hearts like that, like, like we read about in the Bible for, for Paul, God, for, for, for Peter and John and James, the disciples. Would you do that? Help us see the cross today. Not what we remember. See afresh that you are alive right now. Work in our hearts, Lord. We need you. In your name we pray. Amen. As we have two tables up front, we have three tables in the back. We take the Lord's Supper every week. I'll say it different this week. Why? I usually say we love it. Why? We need it. You need to see it. You need to take it. You need to see other people taking it. Because that's a witness. I believe. I believe this week. I believe today. I believe right now. Let's come again and do it again next week. Build, help build one another's faith through being obedient from joy. <laughs> Not, oh, I got to. No, you don't, you don't have to. You get to. Let us change our hearts. And so we pray for either you come by yourself or with, with your spouse or family or friends, and we, we scatter around and we pray for repentance. We pray for, out of celebration for what God has done this week. We mourn. Many are walking through death, literally, this week. And yet, we come together because our hope is greater than death. It has to be. And he's the author of life, and we worship him. And even in the darkest hour, right at the end, Eloi, Eloi, Lima Sabachthani, we cry out, even though I don't feel like this is going right, yet I trust you. And by his grace, we follow. So let's do that together.